How's everybody doing today? Good to see you. All right. Okay, today we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. open here. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you've called us to be your followers in such a time as this. And Lord, as we unpack the word, that we would understand this perspective of money and wealth that you've given us throughout scripture and especially in this particular narrative. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand our responsibilities going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're looking at Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. To save time, I'm just going to go through it in smaller segments. My objective today is to illustrate how finances disclose our motivations, our priorities, and shows how we steward things. So money is more than just an exchange of goods, money discloses our heart, discloses who we are. Because money, uh, especially those of us who work hard, sometimes I put in 16 hours a day of work, um, money represents my blood, my sweat, my tears, my years of study, my talent, my abilities, doesn't just represent a picture of a Benjamin and that's it. And that's why Jesus spoke about money more than he spoke about love, justice. There's actually one chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul wrote two chapters on stewardship and money, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. All the parables of Jesus, a lot of them, most if not all of them, are related to money. Um, and so for anybody who thinks that money is not important, or if it shouldn't be talked about in church, then you would have to say Jesus was off. Because if he was here, he would talk about money perhaps more than any other subject, because that's what we have in the Gospels. And so we need to ask ourselves the following questions. Am I being faithful with the material goods and resources the Lord has entrusted to me? We have to ask ourselves that question. Second question, have, have I been faithful in serving others with my time, treasure, and talents? Third question, am I devoted to the spirit of mammon or to God? And so as we begin to unpack this, we have to look at some of the ways Jesus refers to money and, and some of his parables and in Luke chapter 16, 
Um, as we understand the context of Luke 16, we have to realize that man put chapters and verses in to help us memorize scripture, but if you exclude chapters and verses, you, you would connect the story of the prodigal son with this. And of course, to refresh your memory, the prodigal son is the son who asked his father for his inheritance. He went out and wasted his money on profligate living, including prostitution and partying and all of that. And he came back to his father, repented, not because he had a spiritual awakening, but because he ran out of money, which shows us that God often uses money to discipline us to teach us his ways and to bring us back. So sometimes when you have an economic collapse in your own life, it could be because God is trying to get you to learn something. It may not just have to do with the economy or your business or your job. Um, and so in this story of the prodigal son, the son of the inheritance, because he didn't utilize his money correctly, because his motives were wrong and his money reflected his motives, not vice versa, this son of the inheritance became a slave, but he was restored back to being a son of the inheritance when he repented and came back to God. And we see this as a common biblical cycle because every one of the 66 books of the Bible talk together. You can't interpret one passage without the whole Bible. And so you look at this cycle of the prodigal son as creation, decreation, and recreation. You see the first instance of this in Genesis 1 where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, creation, decreation, and the heavens without form and void. Darkness is upon the face of the deep. Then beginning of recreation, let there be light, and then the whole world was designed you see that whole pattern, even in the children of Israel. They were taken out. They were a great nation. Then they were decreated by slavery in Egypt. They were given a new start, but they blew it and then had to learn how to manage resources that were scarce in the wilderness. And because they failed, they never came into the promised land. It was the next generation that came into the promised land. So we see how God utilizes money. Sometimes it's connected to cycles in our lives, cycles in our nation. And we see the cycle of creation, decreation, and recreation throughout the whole Bible. And uh, I taught this in Staten Island a few weeks ago. And so you see patterns throughout the, the Bible. That's why we have to see all of Scripture all 66 books talking to each other in order to understand why Jesus was teaching something. And so he said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against this manager that he was wasting the rich man's possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg. I've now decided what to do. I'm going to 
do something so that people will receive me into their houses. So he began summoning his master's debtors one by one, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill and make it 50. Another one owed him a hundred measures of wheat. Take your bill and write 80. And the master of this steward, this manager, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So in this story, and you know we're only reading part of it, we're gonna continue on. In this story, Jesus speaks about a man who exerted worldly wisdom when he used his position as a manager to gain friends and secure his future. Now, people get confused when they read this because they think that Jesus is commending the man. Never said Jesus commended him. It said his boss commended him. So you gotta follow this. What Jesus was bringing attention to was the shrewdness of this worldly manager because he was trying to bring a lesson out about how wealth depicts who we are in our hearts and the, the right way of utilizing wealth. So it's a complex teaching that makes a point about shrewdness, practical wisdom, and the use of worldly resources. So this manager knew he was about to lose his job. He reduces the debts owed to his master to secure their, these people's favor the ones who he reduced their debt. And when the master found out, he commended the manager, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness in looking out for himself. So now we see the lesson has to do with wealth and the future. It's important because then Jesus brings it back to a correct balance in a minute. So he's commending the manager for his foresight and cleverness, not because of his unethical behavior, because he still got fired, remember. It wasn't as if the boss said, okay, you were shrewd, now I'm not gonna fire you. He still lost his job. So the Bible is not condoning unethical behavior or mismanagement, but in, in this instance, in light of the fact he was gonna lose everything, the boss was commending the guy for thinking of the future. So that's all we need to understand. Um, but then Jesus begins to bring a balance and clarity related to his perspective on money. For the sons of this world, notice the word this world, other translation, the sons of this generation, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So now Jesus is putting the prior example in the category of the sons of this world or the sons of this generation. He wasn't saying then that they were acting like Christians. He was showing the way they operate in the worldly context of their values. And so what does he mean, the sons of this world, and what does he mean by their own generation? Well, he's referring back to Genesis 3.15, when God cursed Adam and he said, I'm gonna put 
enmity or hatred between you and the woman. I'm sorry, he cursed the serpent, not Adam here. I'm putting enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And so Jesus is talking about after the fall of man, there were two categories of people in the world. They were divided by seeds. It wasn't black, white, red, brown, the way we categorize everybody today. You were either the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Case closed. You could understand the whole Bible by looking back from this perspective. You're either in one camp or the other. And so what Jesus was saying is the sons of this generation, meaning those generated from the serpent, meaning under the influence, not the exodus that they were born of Satan, but the influence or the worldly paradigm of this, this system that is satanic, the uh, perspective of wealth that we have today that is not of the kingdom is very self-focused and narcissistic, and it worships the God of money instead of utilizing money correctly, and that's what he's going to get into in a minute. So he's saying the sons of this world are more shrewd with their own generation than the sons of light, meaning we don't play by the same rules they do as Christians. Sometimes it could be to our disadvantage because they outfox us, so to speak, with some unethical behavior. But because someone's unethical doesn't mean you have to be unethical in order to get ahead. So it's very complicated, this, this passage. Um, so Jesus is not condoning mismanagement. He's not condoning unethical behavior here. He's classifying these people as the sons of this world, generated from this world. John the Baptist did the same thing with the unrepentant religious leaders. He said, you offspring of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's in Matthew 3 uh, and in uh, Luke 3. So throughout scripture, there are people who are of Satan and those who are of God. Jesus said the same thing in John 8. He said to the Pharisees who didn't believe in him, he said, you can't hear me because you are sons of the devil. He can't abide in the truth because he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's talking about this whole system that was developed after Adam fell into sin and the world was divided by two paradigms of living based on the seed of the woman, which is where Christ came from, and the seed of the serpent. So now we understand, again, another example of how the whole Bible communicates with, the, with each other. So the sons of light do not play by the same rules as the sons of darkness. Then Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so Jesus is using this story to make a broader spiritual point. The sons of this world are adept at navigating worldly affairs with shrewdness. He urges his followers, the sons of light, to also be wise, but in a manner that aligns with eternal dwellings or eternal principles. Um, and so then he goes on to say, one who is faithful 
in very little is also faithful in much. So now he's talking to the sons of light. Now he's applying the story of what happened with the unjust manager who swindled his boss out of money. Now he's applying it to us. So what is the moral of this story? Well, he says it here. The one who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. The one who's dishonest in very little will also be dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth or unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you true riches? So here he's saying again how money discloses your heart and he connects it to God entrusting you with true riches. So if you can't manage your money properly, God can't trust you with spiritual things. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. And so he also says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another person's, meaning the manager and his boss, who will give you that which is your own? So Jesus is also saying is when it comes to money, first he usually puts you in a situation where you have to work for somebody else or you have to serve another person's ministry. And he's saying if you can't serve another person faithfully, then God will never give you your own. So if you can't faithfully serve your boss, how are you going to have your own business? Or how are you going to start it the right way? Or how are you going to know how to maintain or to keep it? If you can't start a church the right way, then you're going to have problems later on. If you feel like you're called to be a pastor, but you can't serve in a church faithfully, how's God going to give you a church? It, it just goes on and on and on and on. These are ways, and in this particular instance, he's using money uh, and working for somebody. And so he's saying that he first trusts us with small amounts to manage before he could give us more. So I hear all the time, I've you know, been a pastor for 40 years now, don't hold it against me, and I hear people tell me all the time, Pastor, if I win the lotto, I'll begin tithing. I tell them, why don't you just invest your money in the kingdom instead of foolishly wasting it on the lotto or FanDuel and all those things. Basically, what Jesus is saying is if you can't give him 10% of $100 a week, you won't tithe when you start making 1000 a week. In other words, God trusts you with a small amount. I remember my children. I was just giving them a minuscule allowance. We taught them to tithe off of that. If they couldn't tithe off $5 a week. How could they tithe when they're making 5000 a week? So what you have always starts off small, and God tests your heart to see what you're going to do with it. You say, well, if I had more money, I would tithe. If you're not tithing now, you're not going to tithe then. You've got to start with where you are. And I know even some people who tithe based on what they believe in God to get in the future. And it worked every time. I, I was like blown away. They were believing God for a raise. They started tithing as if they had the raise. So, I mean, that's not, I can't prove that in the Bible, but it's a blessing because whatever you give, God always blesses when you give it to him. Uh, and so 
Jesus even said the same thing in Luke 6.38, give and it will be given back to you. He didn't say it might. He didn't say there's a good chance or a good possibility in Luke 6.38. He said, give and it shall be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men give back to you. For with the measure you give, it shall be measured back to you. Again, looking at how the whole Bible communicates together. What is this, how does this teaching right now connect to the rest of Scripture? I'll just give you one example. Where is an example of being faithful in little and then being entrusted with more? Where is that in the Bible? Most things are found in seed form in the book of Genesis, the first few chapters. You could almost preach on every subject in the Bible from the first three chapters of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, God entrusted Adam with what? A small garden. It says in verse 14 and 15, to till it and keep it. That was an anticipation of what? The overall command that he gave in Genesis 1:28, to bear fruit, multiply, replenish what? The earth. Not just the garden, the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every creeping thing. In other words, God wanted Adam ultimately to influence and rule the whole world for him. But what happened? He failed in a measly, measly little garden by eating the fruit of the wrong tree. He failed in something small, and he never was able to lead to the capacity and management skill that God originally gifted him with because he failed in that which is little. You see how the whole Bible talks to each other? And so we need to be faithful in what we have now. If we're not, how could God give us more? That's why Jesus had to come as the last Adam to undo with the first Adam blue. You could trace the first Adam and connect him as a type and Jesus as the antitype. Adam, the, uh, the shadow, Jesus, the fulfillment, Old Testament, the Jews used the lunar calendar, shade at night, and in the New Testament, Jesus' face shone like what? The sun, not like the moon. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the New Testament in seed form. And so we see examples of people who God has blessed tremendously and these people challenge me. I've always tried to at least give my tithe and a lot more than that, but you read some of these people that were faithful beyond that which I've ever seen in my own, my own experience. A guy like Charles Studd, he was known as C.T. Studd. He was a British missionary, professional uh, in cricket. He got saved, he became an evangelist from 1860 to 1931. He was a missionary in China, India, and Africa, and um, he had an incredible philosophy of giving. Upon re receiving a large inheritance from his father, Stud took a radical step by giving away, away the vast majority of his wealth to support various Christian ministries and causes. So tithing is baby stuff. That's the minimalist amount. It's a principle. It's not a law, so you're not cursed if you don't do it. It's a principle that we honor 
And, uh, and so he began giving away large parts of his inheritance. And he famously said this, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He eventually started tithing 90% and keeping 10%. He gave 90% of his income away and lived off 10% and he was always abundantly blessed. Here's another one, R.J. Lee Tourneau. He was known as God's businessman. He was famous for giving 90% of his income to Christian ministries and he said, it's not how much of my money I give to God Listen to this, but it's how much of God's money I keep for myself. So most people have it in reverse. Ah, I got to give God this. They're thinking more about what they could keep for themselves. He had the opposite. He said, I want to figure out how much I'm going to give to God first. And then I'll have the rest. John Wesley said, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, you know, in the English coinage, he said, if I leave behind me 10 pounds at his death, you and all my, mankind can bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. William Colgate, the founder of Colgate, Palmolive Company, you know, the toothpaste and all that. He was a devout Baptist, and he gave a significant amount of his income away and started first by giving a tenth, then gave 50%, and eventually he started giving away all his income, and God kept on blessing him. It's amazing. So all of this is a challenge. It challenges me. I don't give that much. I give a lot more than a tie, but not that much. Because they broke the spirit of fear. They came to a place where they trusted God so much with their finances, they had no more fear. And they just were open to whatever God said. I mean, 100% of my money is God's, not just 10%, because I'm supposed to do what he wants with the 90, not just the 10. And they got to a place where they were so open, they obeyed anything God told them. Jesus wraps up this teaching by saying, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, money discloses where your heart is at. It's not just how much you read the Bible, how much you say, I love God, I love God. You could be in the front here worshiping, dancing, getting, you know, soaking every week. But show me your credit card your checking account, what you write money to, what you spend your money, that shows how much you love God more than exuberant worship on Sunday. Don't get upset at me. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. I'm putting it in the vernacular. So he said you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Money is not evil. It's like a gun. It could be used for evil or for good when it's used to protect people or harm people. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10 says, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. When Jesus said you cannot serve God in mammon, as it says in the um, New King James Version, instead of using the word money, that's the Greek word, it's mammon, some scholars attach the word mammon to a spirit or a demon 
that desires to be worshipped. Hence, when you lust after money inordinately, it could be a form of worship to a deity called money. And I think the United States of America sometimes, their God is money. At the very least, even if you would argue it's not a demon, money here with the use of the term mammon in the Greek is personified as a potential master over your life. You're constantly living in fear, constantly just wanting and wanting and wanting and you're never happy, you never have enough. Well, it has the potential to compete with God in your life and become your priority. You could be poor and still worship money. Has nothing to do with being rich. You could be living off of food stamps and still have money as your God. Matter of fact, you could ask yourself the question, if I had the chance to make a lot of money by constantly working, let's say seven days a week, where it would negatively impact my ability to serve God, my ministry, being with my wife, my children, if you would say yes to that, then there's a good chance that money is now mammon to you because you would put the accumulation of more money ahead of more important priorities like God, your church, and most importantly, your family. Some people don't do that only because they didn't have the opportunity. Maybe that's why God didn't give you the opportunity because he knows that you're going to mess up your life in the future. And that's why it says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you don't delight in him first, he can't give you the desires of your heart because your heart isn't delighting in him. He can't trust you. And so... Money can be used for good. We remember the story in Luke chapter 10 that we studied several months ago, the Good Samaritan. You couldn't be a Good Samaritan if you didn't have a lot of money. The guy found someone beat up, robbed, put him on his own donkey. That donkey was like a Lexus today. It was expensive. That was a very expensive being to walk around with. He put him on his own donkey. He paid for his hotel stay. And he gave the guy extra, and he said, "If spend more, I'll give you the rest. He gave him medicine, me, uh, gave him oil, which was a form of medicine, medicinal help. You can't be a good Samaritan if you don't have a lot of money. You have to have more than what you need to be a good Samaritan in the context of Luke 10. It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to create wealth. The way he wired you, your intellect, your natural and supernatural abilities, that came from God. He gave you the power to get wealth so that he could confirm his covenant so the gospel can go forth. Money is not evil. And if you have your heart set on God, it could be used for the greater good. Every hospice and hospital that ever was started, started was started by Christians. Even the Red Cross was started by a Christian. You need money to have a church. You need money to preach the gospel. You need money to expand. You need money to do whatever. Support your family. Everything. 
but it could either be for God or for yourself. So what are some takeaways as we end this? Number one, we need to prioritize stewardship over ownership, meaning anything I have, I'm a steward for God. If you think it's my car, my house, my money, my salary, you're already off the wall. You've already missed it. You gotta look at yourself as a steward. Nothing I have belongs to me. Not even your body. The body is the Lord's, it says in 1 Corinthians 6. The body's the temple, the Holy Ghost. Number one, prioritize stewardship over ownership. Number two, be faithful in small things before you can be trusted with greater things. Number three, use worldly resources for eternal impact. Number four, beware of the dual loyalty trap. You cannot serve God and money. You can't be devoted to both at the same time. There's no such thing as neutrality. You either love God with all your heart or you love money with all your heart. Number five, embrace generosity as a rule of life, just like we saw with C.T. Studd, R.J. Letourneau, John Wesley, and I didn't even mention others like George Mueller. I have friends that are so generous, they actually walk around with a few hundred dollars in their left pocket looking and praying about who they could give it to, especially when they go shopping. If they see someone struggling to pay for groceries, they pay for it. They look for the other, they pray, God, who can I bless with this money? And they're always blessed. They never lack because a generous heart is the heart of God who so loved the world, he gave his best. He didn't give his leftovers. He gave his only begotten son and so if we're going to be like God, we're going to be generous. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you. That you said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You didn't say money was the root of all evil. But you did teach the money discloses our hearts and our motives. Help us to be more like you as a church. Help us to be more generous than we ever have before. Help us not to be minimalist. We wouldn't want to be a minimalist with our wife or our husband and just love them enough to survive. Help us not to be minimalist when it comes to our finances to help us to give hilariously, as it says in 2 Corinthians 9, where God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver in the Greek. Help us understand and walk into the discovery of that joyful life of being a giver. And Jesus said, give and it shall be given back to you. He who waters shall be watered himself, Proverbs 11. Oh, God, we just pray that you'd help us walk into a realm where the spirit of fear and even of mammon is broken and that we would be free to serve you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, not just with our lips, but with our money. In Jesus' name.